So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You know, the speck and this infinitesimal thing, but like, that's beautiful because now I can go and do whatever I want, you know? Hey folks, Mark Devine here with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for coming back and joining us. I am super, super, super excited to have dear friend Kyle Maynard with me today. Uh, before we get started, let me remind you, please go rate this podcast on iTunes and if you start to the right, that's where you're supposed to start, where you click on number five. Okay. Don't have to worry about anything else. Just click on number five, give it five stars. Good to go. Hoo-yah. Except this episode, maybe. No, no this, this episode should get a six. So we're gonna, we've already petitioned Apple to give us one extra star for this episode. Nice. Because it's going to rock. Uh, so thank you very much, and thanks for your support. You know, we don't take it lightly. Um, Kyle, man, I first met Kyle, like, I think it was... Four years ago, three to four years ago, down in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, we did a 20X with a group called, what was it called? It was a... Challenge, not Challenge Athlete. Well, it was like um, Transition Possible. Transition Possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I should have known that. I should remember that. So Transition Possible. And so the whole um, essence of this was to pair wounded athletes and warriors, and most of whom had lost a limb, although we had also Corey Reeves there, who was blind. That was interesting. Yeah. Super neat guy. I think there. he was amputees. And blind and an yeah. amputee, right. And so we paired wounded uh, warriors and athletes up with executives, like CEOs, and put them through a 12-hour 20X. Wasn't that cool? And Except for half the CEOs Half the CEOs out. quit. <laughs> like, know, right? So half the CEOs sissies, quit. You know? <laughs> And the wounded warriors and athletes. One of the most inspiring experiences of my life. I was like, ah. Oh, it was unreal it was to watch unreal. you guys. And, and, and there was one evolution, which I would, I'm not going to talk about right now, but you know, if you want to bring it up later. It was actually when I was watching my coaches unfold this, I was like going, holy cow, like, can we do this? Mm. Do you remember where we had all the athletes take off their prosthetics? Yeah. And then all the CEOs had to figure out how to get you from one side of the yeah. gym to the other. To the other. <laughs> and they freaked wow, out. Yeah, they totally. literally lost their minds. Anyways, Kyle, uh, for those of you who are watching, you may have noticed that Kyle basically has um, no arms and no legs, or at least your legs and arms were, didn't grow beyond kind of the knee and the elbows. Exactly. Right? Knee they the call elbow. that congenital amputee? or Congenital amputation. It's about as technical as I know. Doctors didn't really have any explanation for what happened when you I was born. You weren't technically amputated. They, no, they, were just, just, they just didn't grow developed. up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So to see Kyle, like you are so incredibly inspiring. I still on my iPhone have the video of you doing box jumps. Do you remember that in the parking lot down there? That was so epic. And then also pushing the sled. Right. So trust me, guys. <laughs> Kyle's one of the There's most. There's a lot that I blacked out about that day. But... <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. You probably have no recollection. That was like. I do remember you. Know, I think I had the hose in my face for a little while, but that was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah of course. You know, that's no that was. Ah, oh, was so good. So <laughs> that's much to fun. Keep you focused. Yeah, an incredibly, incredibly inspiring guy. So Kyle, 
a couple of key points, and then we'll get into you know, some interesting chat. So you are, uh, obviously, you're, I, we know that you're a speaker, and you're an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about that later. You're an athlete. Like, you were a champion wrestler in high school. That's cool. So I want to talk about that. Like, how did that come about? It sounds to me like your father had a, a father and mother had a big impact. Your father was in the military? Yep, he was. Okay. He was Army, yeah. What people need to know about Kyle is that he's the first uh, quadruple amputee to ascend Mount Kilimanjaro. And I saw um, images of this, and you basically bear crawled up the entire mountain. Took you three days, right? <laughs> Talk about uh, it. It was so actually ten days up Kilimanjaro. We did a okay. climb this year in South America, so the highest peak there, Aconcagua. Uh, Aconcagua, yeah. yeah. We, we completed that in seventeen days. <laughs> so, did you use the same rig, or did you have some improvements on that? Uh, some minor improvements, like you wouldn't be able to tell in the photos, but it okay. made a huge difference. Even just like you know, I raised up the right side of my body about an inch, and it's just like made night and day difference. Because you have a different yeah, size ratio going on there? Never would have known. You never know? would have thunk that. Never would have, like, I, I thought that things were, like, symmetrical, but there's about an inch difference in terms of my right arm and right. leg and left side. So um, I think that So actually, you climbed Kilimanjaro lopsided. Yeah. Well, I used to, like, you know how sometimes in a divide of a trail, right, you'll have, like, it's not, like, obviously super flat, so you'll have one side that kind of, you know, is higher than the other. Right. And I used to always try to get the right to have the right side of the trail be the high side. Interesting. And I was like, I didn't really know why that felt so much better, but right. sure enough. Well, now you know. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're also a CrossFitter. You own your own CrossFit gym called No yep. Excuses CrossFit. And that was named after a book you wrote when you were in your 20s, right? Or was it yeah, earlier? 19. 19 years out. old called No Excuses, The True Story of a Congenital Amputee Who Became a Champion in Wrestling and Life. MMA fighter, um, been in different documentaries and basically all around super cool guy. <laughs> Major ADD. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot exactly. Of I I, rec- I bet you're you're it's a little bit busy uh, these days. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that's been haunting me and I'm whining a little bit about, so I'm trying to check that. But what's your life like right now? Let's let's talk about now, and then we'll go back and hit up some of these other cool things. So I moved to San Diego three years ago. It was one of the best decisions of my life. It was about a 10-minute decision, literally. Um, I booked a one-way ticket December 9th at 4.50 p.m. Where were you before? In Atlanta, Georgia. Or So my CrossFit right. box is still there. And That's right. Yeah, it was packed a duffel bag and moved. What was, caused you to want to move out here? There were a few factors. So one, I wanted to, I competed in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Championships the last two years. And, um, but came to San Diego, like the first time, 2005. I loved it. I really wanted to be here. Started dating a girl that was like on the West Coast. And it was like a number of factors and to make a very long story short, my grandmother was battling a, um, a really gnarly brain tumor mm. and um, that she ended up passing from. We had this really unbelievable morning together before she had this brain surgery. And one of the most special hour and a half periods of my life wow. were laughing, joking, crying. Yeah. And I knew that she'd come out of the surgery okay. And I spent most of the day at the hospital, but she came out of the surgery okay. She was in recovery. And the girl I was dating, I was, she had been in town visiting, and I was about to drive her back to the airport. And I could very clearly, in that experience, see myself on that hospital bed, and then not, you know, hopefully not soon, but even in the grand scheme of things, we're all going to be there soon. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why am I in Atlanta when I'm not as happy as I could be? You know, this mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something I've wanted to live on the West Coast for a long time, so I literally booked a one-way ticket, packed a duffel bag, and moved. Isn't that interesting? So sometimes we have to stare death in the face whether it's our own or someone else that we love, 
to make a decision that you, you probably knew yep. that you wanted to do. You just weren't That's willing to make it. Right? So much easier to just to wait, right? Yeah. Going, oh, Kick yeah, the can we'll, down the we'll road. Do that. Right. Yeah, I'll get to that next year. Right, totally. You know, if, you, if you really have that experience that next year's not guaranteed, I think it forces you to act a lot right. with a lot more decisiveness. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about your formative years. So, so go all the way back to the beginning. And what was it that your parents did differently with you than obviously you know, they could have, which helped form you as a young adult and, and create the trajectory of your life? There is a, an interesting relationship between my mom and dad. Um, you know, my dad having, you know, they were both young. They were in their early 20s. And, you know, my dad had just come out of the Army. He was a military police officer <laughs> over at uh, Fort Myer. You know, and I was born at Walter Reed, which is now okay. where so many of our service members that have gone through amputations have come home to do their mm-hmm. the rehab. And really, the, it, you know, in a nutshell, my mom and dad, they both wanted to make things as normal as possible mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. My dad knew that like, that wasn't gonna come without some massive failure and figuring right. stuff out. So, you know, even <clears throat> as simple as something like picking up a spoon or a fork, you know, and using that to go and scoop up the food. So they didn't enable it, they forced you to yeah. figure it out. I mean, my mom, her instincts were to, she wanted to do it for me, she wanted to coddle, she wanted to be there to help, she didn't want to see me go through the failures, but my dad, I think he knew that like, and I kind of say this jokingly sometimes in speeches, but like, you know, he knew that, you know, it's jokingly and a little bit serious. Like, I, I wouldn't want mom or grandma like sitting behind me on my senior prom date, like, you know, <laughs> waiting to go and give me a bite, right? So it's <laughs> right. the, um, I think that that one decision colored so much of my life. Right. Know? That's huge. How did you get into wrestling? Was that your choice or did your dad kind of guide you to that, to the mat? It was a little bit that of That must have been yeah. very formative for you. Like, just think about, you know, when I, I, I wrestled a little bit, but yeah. not like anything like you did, but I just know how much of a growthful experience it was. So you have to face your fears and get your ass kicked. Right. And, you know, just all the challenge around that type of training because the intensity and the pain and the suffering. And what a great way for you to grow as a young man. So right. how did right. you get into that? Except the cutting weight part kind of. Right? Yeah, that part sucks. <laughs> I know. Right? The... Uh, no, I mean, it's amazing, though. It's like, it just, the sport itself has taught me so many lessons. It started from, I played football, and my dad tricked me into thinking it was going to, like, improve my tackling, you know, like, oh, yeah, do this. But he, <laughs> the amazing thing was, and, well, in football, too, it, it, it kind of came natural, right? So, I, I, I mean, in sixth grade, the guys weren't, the, you know, they were bigger than me, but they weren't a ton bigger than me. They played nose guard, mm-hmm. and I would just smash my helmet in the running back shins <laughs> when he would come by. Like, kidding. that was the way I tried to take people down, and... But in, in wrestling, it was different because it did not come natural at all. It was like a long time, over mm. a year and a half before I actually won a single match. And, mm. you know, that contrasted to like senior year of high school, I ended up, you know, wrestling able-bodied kids. I won 36 varsity matches, beat the state champ from Alabama and Louisiana. I was one match away from being a high school All-American. Mm. But when I started, if my dad were being honest with you, then he would, he would tell you like legitimately he did not think that it was physically possible for me to win a match. Mm, yeah, I'm sure. And what about your still coach? Made me do it anyway. Your coaches, did they were they um, did they take you seriously or were they thinking that this is like a charity case and they're just going to let you roll around on the mat? I think it was a little bit of both actually. You know, it was um you know, my coach I think felt the same way that 
it probably wasn't likely that I was going to go and win a match. Yet he spent, he was the head varsity coach, Coach Ramos, and he would come and, and spend, you know, it was in sixth grade, and he would come to the youth practices long after he was, you know, it wasn't his responsibility to do that, but he would mm-hmm. show up once or twice a week. He would wrestle, he would tuck his arms into his sleeves and try to wrestle from my perspective. And, oh, no kidding. You know, it really, for the first year that I wrestled, there was only close to a year, there was only one move, one technique that I had. And I actually had to let somebody take me down and they'd get behind me so they'd score two points for the takedown and they'd apply, apply a half Nelson's, like a pinning combination, mm-hmm. right? And then I would grab hold of their arm, wing down and try to roll them. <laughs> that was the only move that I had. That was your one trick wonder. And you know, so it was like I spent so much of that year on my back, like almost pinned and so we, my, you know, did you ever want to give up in that? Oh, begged to quit. Yeah. Begged to quit. I hated it. You know, I mean, it's like so embarrassing to get your butt kicked by somebody else. And people were saying it was like almost borderline child abuse. I bet. You know? So that, I, I guess that took a lot of discipline on your parents' part, or maybe as your father to keep you in the game like that. And a lot of parents, most parents wouldn't have done it. They, um, yeah, he, my dad kind of tricked me into coming in and trying it. I lost every match in sixth grade, didn't want to do it again. He tricked me into coming out in seventh grade, and he said, he was like, he didn't win a whole match his, his first year either. And um, he said, nobody ever wins a match the first year, but everybody does their second year because you're going to find somebody who's their first season, and you'll beat them. So he says, if you sign up this year, you'll, you'll beat somebody. And um, sure enough, I found out from my grandpa when I was interviewing him for my book that my dad had told me this story. He's like, I didn't win a match my first year. And I believed it, like literally based my whole life on that. <laughs> and I found out it was a complete lie. <laughs> so I was like, for the, my awesome. whole adult life, or like at least like teenage, forgive him years, for that I lie. Like, if he hadn't yeah, done that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. But, and so you won a match the second year? Won a match that year. And then by the third season, I was undefeated going to the state tournament. It was like no a kidding. night and day difference. So what changed? Like you learned some more moves or was it confidence? Actually that, I mean, it's or partially you scare just, the shit out of everyone. <laughs> that experience curve, you know, I think right. is like anything you start out, you know, I think the experience curve, I think about this a lot, right? Like in business and life and whatever you're doing, if you start out doing something at first, you're going to make a ton of mistakes. Of course. Yeah. You know, in business, you're going to waste a bunch of money. You know, you're going to do stupid things. You're going to spend money on some marketing campaign that doesn't work. Over time, you're able to drive your cost down because you're, you make less mistakes, mm-hmm. right? And you're able to do things more efficiently. And I think that that experience curve is, for me, it just might be more exacerbated on the front end for mm-hmm. a lot of things, mm-hmm. whether it's like putting on my socks or for the first time, you know, or like driving a car or, you know, anything, shaving or wrestling a match, like climbing a mountain, like it's just that front end period is, you know, a little bit of a steeper learning curve. Right. But then after you get through that initial By the period, way, everything you just listed, I'm trying to imagine how you do it. <laughs> right. I have no idea. <laughs> like, I would be completely lost. It's kind of how my life has been, though. It's really like the foundational elements of it. And I've got an amazing group of friends that have kind of been on this journey with me that it like come up with a crazy goal and mm. some people will be like, well, how the heck are you going to do that? And I'm like, I don't know. Right. I will figure it out. Those, those three words, I think I don't know, are probably the three most important in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a but after that. Right. I don't know, but, but it's not going to keep me yeah. from trying. We'll figure it out. Right. right. We'll figure it out. I love that. What's the hardest thing you've ever done in your life? 
And I don't mean like emotionally, like breaking up with a girlfriend or something, but like what's the hardest challenge you've taken? Uh, so it's way harder for them than me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I kid. But yeah. no, um, I, I would say probably it was as a kid, five years old, being in stores, you know, where like other kids look or stare or yeah, like, the make judge, fun of me. Judging, yeah. By far, way more than the physical side, way more than anything else, that emotional separation that I felt, you know? Mm-hmm. So, in another perfect example. Did you have any friends back then that, that could help you through that or totally. stand by you? My mom was, uh, she really got the importance of like the social elements, mm-hmm. you know? So, I had a great group of friends. I spent the first, I was born in DC at Walter Reed, spent mostly the first 10 years of my life in Indiana, and then came to Georgia mm-hmm. when I was 10 in fifth grade. And that transition was rough because it was like I left all those friends and you know the new kids and they didn't look at me as Kyle. Then it was like they kind of looked at me as, as different. And then again, it's that kind of experience curve, that time, right? It goes and passes and things are normal again. But you know, my mom used to organize like neighborhood street hockey games and <laughs> oh, cool. you know, it was like we didn't have a ton of money, but she would go and buy like uh the um, you know, newest like Super Nintendo gaming system so that the kids would want to come to the house and mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. It's pretty neat. I imagine you still get some of that, but have you seen a change in our society where there's more of an acceptance or le- let's say less kind of staring, less judging, less of the perception challenges? There, there is that. I think it's also more so the change has kind of been in me where it's, I've never known any different, right? Yeah. So I, it's just, you know, kind of just normal. You don't even notice it anymore, probably. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I kind of get, but I also understand, too, from their perspective, if they haven't seen someone like me before, of course, they're going to be curious, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, as a kid, I felt more threatened by it. Now I can appreciate it for what it is, but I think the difference is I've had 30 years to cultivate that mindset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and spending time with a lot of our, you know, a lot of our military that, like, I know that, you know, you and I both care about, like, deeply. It's, it's like when somebody goes through some type of loss or an amputation or something like that, so more of a visual mm-hmm. shift. I think that the emotional, psychological side of that is, is way more challenging than, like, the physical, how are we going to do this, how are we going to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. How did you get into CrossFit? <laughs> I really enjoyed, I don't know, I think I first met you at the affiliate yeah. Summit in Florida, the first one. Remember that? Yeah, was, in, like Miami. Yeah, Miami, so. yeah. yeah. And um, that was pretty interesting. And, of course, Coach Glassman was there, and we, I think we did some wads and stuff. And I, Or maybe, I'm not sure where I saw you doing muscle-ups. And I, except, except for Transition Possible, of course, right. that was different. But I've seen you do CrossFit wads, and it's pretty, it's pretty cool to see how you modify. And, and it really doesn't, I mean, you get an amazing workout. Oh, yeah. I can see how you'd be a natural at it. So how did you kind of get interested in it and <laughs> start a CrossFit gym? Not the most uh, inspiring story, but I just I saw a video of um, the Nasty Girls. Oh, yeah. It right. was An- uh, Annie, Eva, Eva T, and, um, and Nicole. Right. And I was like, these, you know, smoking hot, beautiful girls are killing those themselves. Mutant fitness Mutants, girls, yeah. right? <laughs> like, what the heck is this? <laughs> no, right. What just happened? It was like... 12 minutes and it was like one of the most, you know, mind-blowing things I've ever seen. And all of a sudden, you know, I found myself at a certification like a couple weeks later. Hmm. That's cool. And so you still have the gym back uh, in Atlanta? 
I do. No yeah, it's um, it's awesome. We've got a great group of people that are managing for me. I'm sure probably some of them might be tuning into this, mm-hmm. right? You know, listening to this. So it's um, I'm really grateful. I mean, I've been out in San Diego for three years, and it, the gym's performing way better than at any point in time when I was actually there. Isn't that funny? So <laughs> as soon as I remove myself from the equation, then. I'm about ready to sell U.S. CrossFit, or at least uh, bring someone else in to run it for me. And it's it's probably going to explode. You just got to disappear. I'm holding it back. I got to get out of the way. I'm the single most big limiting factor in my own business. That's cool. So you did the same thing. All right. So let's get into some really interesting things here. First, um, I want to talk about the decision and the preparation and then the mental side of of the Kilimanjaro expedition and and Aquangaga. So both of those, because they're kind of related. Wow. I mean, just to, to, first of all, just to even have the vision to do that is extraordinary. So how did that come about? Like, why did you just one day think, I, w- I wonder if I can do that? Again, most people yeah. with, with arms and legs don't think they can, you know, climb the seven sisters. So there's like, there's, there's, I think there's always been a, a thing in me that, you know, since I was a little kid, my, my wheelchair, frankly, I mean, it was not like, there are many places that my wheelchair couldn't go. Right. And at home, I didn't really use the wheelchair, but when I was out with friends and stuff, that I would be traveling in the wheelchair. And if my friends, if we were playing paintball or something, right, and they go and run off like deep into the woods, there were many places that I couldn't go. You just wanted to go there. Right? I wanted to go, right? Mm-hmm. It was like totally inaccessible. So I think that the desire was always there. But the first like impetus of, of Kilimanjaro happened. It was a it was a CrossFit sectional event. So before they had the CrossFit open, it was right. a um, this uh, sectional competition. And the first workout, they announced the workouts like two days before, and the first workout was you had to do a sprint up Stone Mountain in Atlanta. So it's about a 900-foot, you know, like 1.2-mile like hike. So, you know, good-sized hike. But the first workout, 1,000-meter row, sprint up Stone Mountain. I, with the rowing machine, I'll go and take like a sort of like a like a webbing type strap and like hook it to the, the handlebar of the right. rower, mm-hmm. wrap that around my arms. Right. And I remember it's a seeing seat. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we, um, so you did the row and then jumped off that and I had leather welding sleeves to, that I had duct taped around to um, use to protect my arms. Mm-hmm. Seemed like a good idea for the first like quarter of <laughs> 20, a mile. Yeah, right, 20 yards. <laughs> Until I like decided, or realized that like the leather welding sleeves on the outside held up great, but it was a lot tougher than my skin. It literally just started tearing all the skin off the ends of my arms. No shit, ouch. So everybody did this workout. It was like, you know, it was like 25 minutes average time. There was a guy, amazing guy, that who's partially paralyzed. He did it like 50 minutes, you know, and it was like, for me, it took like an hour and 46 minutes. I got to the top, I'm bloody, I'm like just sweaty. I'm like, dude, I get there, you know. But I'd been to the top of Stone Mountain about a dozen times because every time that friends or family would come into town in Atlanta, you'd have to go there and take a picture, right? So there's a tram that would go to the top. Uh-huh. And I'd always taken the tram. And this is the first time that I'd hiked it. And I got there and I was like, holy shit, this is beautiful. This is like breathtaking. And it was mm-hmm. only because of that like period of suffering right. for the hour and 46 minutes to go and get to that it point. It changed your perspective. Completely. Yeah. And even though it, it was the exact same experience as the dozen times I'd been there before. Same place. You mean, same yeah. place. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's interesting. The, so uh, what, what changed was the inside of you, right? Big time. Your, your whole appreciation for that peak and what the view meant to you changed because you did the work. Did the work. 
That's awesome. That uh, night, we, I, you know, it was a two-day event, so we had another tripper wad after that. And, um, you know, I was in an uh, ice bath in my bathtub that night, and one of my friends was there from my box, and she told her, I was like, this sounds crazy, but I want to climb Kilimanjaro. Hmm. And she was like, uh, you are out of your effing mind. Like, you know, you basically <laughs> just, like, you know, tore all the skin off your arms right. doing, like... Yeah, a mile. Yeah, a mile, right? How are you going to do... It was Kilimanjaro's, like, over a 30-mile trail... Up, yeah, straight up. Um, you know, up to 19,340 feet. It was like just totally different. And, that, you know, again, coming back to this theme of I don't know, it was like, it, I, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. But I knew that if we set that intention and built the team and the resources would appear. Yeah. Okay. So once you set that intention, of course, you know, the train was rolling. What was the prep like? I mean, how long did it take? Did you set it for two years out or a year out or how long did you take to prep and what was that? So that event was, the CrossFit thing was fall of um, 2010. Started building the team April 2011 and then um, we were on Kilimanjaro January 2012. January 3rd we flew to Africa. So No kidding. Had the final gear December 15th 2011. So it was like two weeks, two and a half weeks before we actually like were on the mountain and we tried all kinds of things bath towels on my arms and my feet, oven mitts, pot holders, like football hip and Whose idea was it to build the harness with the tire rubber and all that? So that, um, we, we, we used the tire and the rubber. We just went to like a hardware store and we're like, how can we go and we'd use the mountain bike tire, cut it up and duct tape that all together. We kind of created this prototype. Just did it together, the team that I had, mm. um, my friend Dan, Joey, and then um, some amazing people out in Arizona rescued me and these really bad ideas for the gear, but they took this prototype, they put together like a carbon fiber system, and so it's like carbon fiber socket, has a hiking shoe sole on the outside, crampons to fit it um, for ice spikes on top, and then it all connects to this climber's harness. Hmm. So it was, but man, it was like even finding someone that was crazy enough to go and take me, right? Right. It was, <laughs> that was a process. So how big was your team like, to help uh, on the mountain itself? Like, so we had nine Americans on Kilimanjaro, 30-plus African support, like guides and porters. It was a huge team. Wow. There was way too much drama logistics in terms of like all the kind of intermoving pieces. And yeah. So Aconcagua that we did this year in February, we brought that back down to four Americans, and one including myself, and two Argentinian guides. That's it's a it. team of six. So, I mean, I really... I got why, you know, I mean, the teams operate with, like, yeah. fewer. Yeah, small is better. Yep. Keep it simple. So the um, so you said it took you nine days, is that right, for Kilimanjaro? It was ten up, two down. Ten up, two down? Yeah. So walk us through a little bit of the highs and lows of the, of the journey, mentally and emotionally, and what your challenges were. Mentally saw the thing for the first time, thought, oh, crap. Yeah, this, this is, is actually idea. really tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I was like, all right, we're here. Let's give it a go. I mean, it was just, it was even that so much that it's just, it was super tall, but it's like also like just so far away. Right. That's like, you know, this, it's a super long approach to actually get to where you're climbing anything, yeah. right? You got to go through I've the rainforest. driven past it. And yeah. you're right. It's just like this flat tundra or whatever, or, or savanna, and then this right. mountain just rises right out of the middle of it, exactly. straight up into the sky. So and It's pretty daunting. I didn't see it until 
we hit the gates and it was like these Jurassic Park gates, you know, they go and open up into the park and like literally the clouds parted and it was like, I crapped my pants instantly. <laughs> like, I just, I was like, this is, the first thought was, you know, when we're filming for ESPN and I tried to like, I don't even know what was going through my head. I'm trying to like. Is that where someone stuck a film yeah. camera in your <laughs> right. face? Is that what's going through your mind right, right now, Kyle? And you're like, holy shit. Yeah, and I'm thinking, man, this is like, this is probably like the worst idea I've ever had. Right. And, but, you know, then we start. Biggest fear was a massive rainstorm. What would happen if the gear got wet? A couple hours into the hike, it's a beautiful day when we're going, and then all of a sudden this monsoon hits us. Hmm. We survived that, got out of the rainforest, and we were behind on the schedule, so we cut out a rest day, hmm. and we kept pushing. We went five straight days, hmm. and at the end of the fourth day, I was mentally, emotionally broken. I was in my tent crying, like gritting hmm. my teeth, angry. Hmm. You know, I was having fun kind of before. You know, we were laughing and joking with friends, and then progressively, the next couple of days, we projected it was going to take 15 days to reach the summit, and. It was on the fifth day that we changed our path. We went straight up the west side of the mountain, but we didn't know that that was an option. And I was thinking, like, man, I'm like, you know, I'm at this. this How, why did that point. happen? Isn't that kind of risky to change your plan that or your path that dramatically right in the middle? It was a risk, but it was the only chance that I had, I think, to make Be- because it because of the physical limitations. Yeah, it was like my. You had to shorten up exactly the time demand. I see. To me, you know, mentally, I was like, I know that in over a 24-hour period, I don't care what it is that, that gets thrown at me, I can handle that. Mm-hmm. But over an extra five to seven days, potentially, like that would be enough to physically, like you know, that on top of everything that I'd already done, just yeah. broken It's kind of like Hell Week with the SEAL training, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's one thing to show up every day and go home and get some sleep at night. And, you know, there's a lot of people who can make it through six months of that, but you throw that six-day period in where they're going to go 24-7. It's totally. a great equalizer. You were facing your own little hell week, <laughs> pretty much. It, it, it felt, I felt it. <laughs> it was, uh, my arms were swelling up, my feet, everything, just the distance, my shoulders were shot, my back, my hips, everything was just in shutdown mode. I was losing a ton of weight. It was, uh, yeah. So this, you had to like really, really dig deep into your reservoir of... Kokoro strength. Bigger, deeper. Yeah, because this was, after yeah. a while, it wasn't about the physical strength at all, because, I mean, you were pretty much shot. So you were just going in pure willpower, probably? Well, something that I think that, you know, that you can relate to, and I know that you share a lot about, is, you know, really, I mean, a powerful step is to really kind of take those eyes off of yourself, right, mm-hmm. and your own suffering. Yeah. And so for me, a big difference maker, and it's really even hard to describe, like, how impactful this was, but... On this like fourth night in the tent, I'm hearing my friends laughing and joking outside, and, and I felt this feeling of like it's not fair that they're having fun and I'm not. Hmm. And then I thought about like what's fair and what's not fair, and basically the um, I was um, brought back to this right before we left. I met the mother of um, of a soldier named Corey Johnson. Hmm. He was an infantry soldier, and he was in Afghanistan, and he was killed in combat. And his mom had just lost her son. She had three grandkids, and she told me, you know, that I mean, his wife was pregnant with their, their third daughter before he went on his final deployment. 
And she told me, you know, we called it Mission Kilimanjaro. We had two veterans, um, Marine and um, Army Staff Sergeant, that were both battling their own injuries. And, you know, we wanted to send a message to, to vets with this that, you know, they could still create the life that they want. Right. And it was like, at this most broken point, I started thinking about, like, you know. Didn't she ask you to um, spread his ashes up there? Yeah. Something like that. I remember so, you telling me the story once before. So that she, became your why. She gave us, um, she gave us Corey's ashes in this like, it was like kind of a moccasin type material, and each one of our team members wore it on a different day. And I remember like feeling him like in that tent with me, and it was like, hmm. I just, I made that decision there. And I mean, this, this sounds crazy, but I, I made the decision that the only way that I'm coming off this mountain is to summit and come back down. Like, I, like if I die here, I'm. I'm I'm going to go there. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop. And it was weird. It was like the pain didn't go away, but it transmuted into something. And it was like that next day. Determination. Had like 50% faster speed, all of that. And like, you know, it was, and that's when we decided to go and change our route. And our guides all were against it. The mm-hmm. African guides that had done the route said it's physically impossible. There's no way Kyle can do this. Like, and I told him, I was like, look, I, one day, I don't care what is on that wall. Like, I'll get through it. And did you have any technical uh, equipment? Was there any roping in and all that kind of stuff? Or was this one, <laughs> one limb after another, so to yeah. speak? We, we didn't plan on going this way, so we didn't have that. I mean, we were, you know, and it's steep and it's icy. I slipped on a sheet of ice at about 17,000 feet, pitch black. Oh, shit. And slid, like, five or six feet. My guide, Kevin, jumped on me, bear-hugged me, and stopped my fall. Huh. Um, wow. Yeah. So another friend, um, a SEAL, Richard Makowitz, he, he yeah, had this like, Richard, yeah. yeah. So Richard has this like mantra, not dead, can't quit. Yeah. And any time that I've gotten to like a really, really bad spot, you know, it's physically especially, then I, I kind of revert to that one. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, it's a good one. You know, kind of thinking like, you know, I'd ask myself like, are you dead? And I knew if I heard that voice back, then I wasn't. So <laughs> <laughs> like, can't quit. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, let us always hear that voice, right? Okay, so what did it feel like when you crested the summit? You know, what was that moment like for you? I mean, for one, it was like this, you know, I mean, we came up and it was like perfect time to have this like beautiful picturesque sunrise, you know, and even that next morning, I almost had like given myself frostbite. My socks froze overnight. Mm. They put on my arms, but it was like, you know, we got through that, and it was like all of the all the stuff to go and get there. And um, I held it together pretty good until I called my mom on the sat phone, and she started crying, and mm-hmm. I was like, just lost it. <laughs> <laughs> and then getting to pay tribute to Corey and to leave his ashes there—it's one of the—it's the greatest honor I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. I just talked to his mom the other day, and um, she messaged me on Facebook, and we kind of talked and. And just sharing some memories about some stuff, and, and she told me she said that really she wants to to be able to go there one day and see. Oh, cool! See it. Yeah. Did you leave any marker behind? We did. We we um and it's I, from people that I've heard it was still sort of there. It just kind of created a little bit of a rock pyre kind of yeah, off like to the side. Cairn, yeah. yeah. Wow, what a cool story. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly, 
But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now, and it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia. Did you, when you climbed Aconcagua, did you have anything like that that came close as a why? Was, what was the, the purpose behind that besides a second, you know, mountain? It was. A big part of it was, as I mentioned, my grandma passing. Okay. It was yeah. the first time I'd really gone through this loss. And it, it's been probably, I think, that year, period of time from... Um, you know, was was moments of the worst year in my life and moments of it being the best year in my life. Mm-hmm. Never had a year quite like it. You know, mm-hmm. really got me to go and examine, like, what am I doing with my life? Spending this mm-hmm. amount of time and airplanes and conference rooms mm-hmm. and all that. Like, mm-hmm. is that what this is really about? Right. You know? So this was kind of like a reset. Your, your grandmother passing away and then your bid for the mountain. So she passed in, this is last year, and she passed in March, and I buried myself in like business and training and um, was writing a new business plan, launching a new business and I was training for the Jiu-Jitsu World Championship so and then so literally she passed on a Friday. My birthday was a Tuesday. She passed that following Friday. I got to hold her hand on the Monday before but then like it was very quick. It was like Easter was the following weekend so my grandpa wanted to do the funeral. She had funeral or viewing Saturday, funeral Sunday and then on Monday, I got up that morning and gave a speech in Indianapolis, flew the next day to Orlando and gave a speech, and um, just buried it. And then all of a sudden, training for the Jiu-Jitsu Worlds, working on the business stuff, and in one week, I lost first round of the Jiu-Jitsu Worlds, and I quit the business thing that I was working on. Hmm. Wow. It all unraveled right unraveled. there. Unraveled. And I spent... You know, ten days on the couch, like just doing nothing, and like just spent that summer wandering. I went to Europe for a while, uh, Northern California. Just like felt like just Lost. just wandering. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So, I really, so the the, tr- the the mountain helped you refocus and kind of help you emerge the next version of yourself. To me, the best word I think I've kind of thought about it, and it's like it it's, was my awakener. It was like just like that moment of like. Um, you know, 
I didn't go down there to try to like make it a big media spectacle. I didn't even really necessarily you know, post on Facebook and stuff that I was going. I didn't really tell a bunch of people. You this time, yeah. yeah, it was like just we had a super small team, just some of my closest friends, and it was, you know, it, it pushed me as far, maybe even a tidbit further than uh, than Kilimanjaro did. And the crazy part was too, we got there, and the Argent the Argentinian government, they, um, they found out they were coming and they said, we want you to be this like, ambassador for this new program we're like, launching where um, we want to encourage people with disabilities to visit all of our national parks. Okay, and so, interesting. Like, and on the way to this meeting, we landed and got checked in the hotel and we went over to this meeting to go and meet one of their ministers of tourism and on the way there, there was this amputee who's a middle-aged guy in the street and he was begging and um, panhandling and he's like, like saw me and we just like made eye contact for probably 15 seconds and and he said uh, maestro and uh, is that like brother or what is what did he mean by that like teacher teacher and it was like I, I mean I you know maybe just did he recognize like a, you or was it just a, just a recognition a, that you were you were healthy and purposeful and he wasn't at the moment i think it was Maybe. more of that and you know i just started to cry too it was like it made me really realize you know like um you know i mean around the world it's like there's just i'm so freaking lucky you yeah, know right. mm-hmm. to be born in this time mm-hmm. where i have a wheelchair <laughs> you know mm-hmm. if i had been born 150 years before you know <laughs> use a wheelchair that's like made out of like you know wooden square tires like well, also, you, know, you could have been born or in Afghanistan. Modern or, day, exactly. Yeah, or with a different set of parents who yeah. weren't, you know, didn't, totally. didn't challenge you like that. It's, um, it's amazing, though, on that point, like when you actually, count, you know, when you take stock of your true blessings, no matter who you are, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, they're there. <laughs> you got to look for them, though, sometimes, you know what I mean? I think it depends, too. I mean, it's like... Sometimes you have the, 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 I think it just puts things in perspective, yeah. but it's in check too. Just to be alive is an incredible blessing. This is a freaking miracle. It is. You know, the yogis call it a precious human birth, right? That we have to earn. Uh, Why squander that? You know what I mean? Uh, How cool is that? So, any, like, clearly the journey up. Aconcagua, Aconcagua, is that how you say it? Yeah, Aconcagua. I had to practice that one. Aconcagua. <laughs> that really helped you focus on the next phase of your life, and that's you know the move to San Diego came out of that. Kind of how we started here. What other insights did you learn, or did you gain on that trip, on that journey? A really key one came. So in that one, we had to, the one day where my guide. He, he was losing confidence that we were going to be able to make it because, you know, with that one, I mean, it gets dangerous. There was actually a gentleman in the group ahead of us, an American climber, who passed away about a thousand feet below the summit. I mean, this is like the first time where from altitude stroke. It was really like, interesting. You know, so it's a higher mountain than Kilimanjaro. Almost, yeah, Kilimanjaro is like a, a little over nineteen thousand. This is is nearly twenty three thousand feet, but still not a technical climb. You can you can go up it without ropes and. There are sections that are that are more technical than others, and it depends mm-hmm. on the route that you go. And, see, right. But it's, there are some sections that, uh, you know, but it's it's not a super technical thing. It's more of an endurance thing. Right. But it's, man, it was like there was this really like I I, I was way grateful for the ice that I hit because before that it was like this loose rock and dirt, 
and like the scree that just slide. Oh, oh, terrible. And I'm yeah. literally like my friends can go and stab their trekking poles in and take a right. big step. And it was like for me, I'm like sliding, like, sliding you know, two it. steps forward, three steps and back. Yeah. Imagine bear crawling this vertical treadmill that's like, <laughs> just, oh my gosh, yeah, you know, right. and like eat, you know, take five steps. And Did you have any you uh, spikes or anything to, that you could dig in with? Or? I, not, I mean, I, I spikes for my arms, but it was, I mean, just that's for the ice. It was like for the right. dirt, it was like just, it was just brutal. It was it's just, it's almost like getting flat closest to the earth is probably the best strategy, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was just like low crawling almost. Low crawling. I and mean, that's what I did. I mean, it was the whole way. It was just try to, just try to, just gut it out. And I had one night, you know, I, uh, we'd just gone through these massive kind of ice pillars. I was exhausted. They probably did 500 pull-ups that day. And then, mm. like, you know, there's a watermelon-sized rock that, like, uh, went by my head going about probably 50 miles an hour. And I just dove under another rock and tried to cover my did head. Did you have a helmet on by any chance? I did, but, I mean, that would it it would just taken it right yeah. off. Yeah, Holy there's shit. no way. And my resting heart rate wouldn't go, like, for a while, like, for over, like, an hour or two. would not drop below 140. Holy crap. And I was thinking, like, at this point, like, this is it. This is, like, may have, like, real consequences. And then I'm thinking, too, well, this, you know, this parks department just asked me to be this, like, honorary member for people with disabilities. Now they're not going to let anybody climb it because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to freaking away, die, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ruin it for everybody. <laughs> Holy shit. That is awesome. I was, like, seriously thinking that. <laughs> I bet you were, yeah. <laughs> I can't die. Now I'm going to let down the entire road. Right. <laughs> Well, that, that brings you back to not dead, can't quit. Yeah. Right. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I actually I remember clearly, you know, years ago, listening to you on a podcast is, um, and talking about the box breathing, and I sat there for hours, like, you know, that night doing it. My guide was asleep, and I just tried to box breathe and, and, and get my heart rate down, and, you know, I, I thought, all right, I'm going to go to sleep, and I'm going to wake up in the morning and reevaluate, mm-hmm. and, but I was really close to calling it. It was the last day, too, that I could have paid extra for a helicopter evac. At that point, I'm thinking, like, take it all. You know, whatever. Like, in my bank account, I'll, what, what's good is it if I'm dead, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. care how much this costs. Like, mm-hmm. I want to be out of here. Mm-hmm. But I decided to go to sleep, wake up the next morning, reevaluate, and then we took a rest day and, you know, felt good to get up that next morning and go again. And, yeah, towards the end... Yeah, I, I remember just the big, one of the big key takeaways too is like my, my ski goggles, right? Anybody that's ever you know, gone skiing or whatever, you kind of mm-hmm. see like ski goggles kind of limit your vision, right? Yeah, give you a little bit of a tunnel yeah, vision. Feeling. A little tunnel vision. And so when I'm hiking, I'm literally staring at the ground, right? So right. it's not a beautiful view. It's just like right there. And instead of, you know, I started thinking, I was like, instead of like looking up and seeing like everything that I have to go and do, I just started having this thought like, I'm just going to focus on what's in my field of vision right now. Yeah. Right yeah. there. And then there, then there will be another thing. Right. And then there will be another thing. That's awesome. It's yeah. a great application of the micro goal concept, right? It's like, yeah. All you got to do is get right here. to there. It was like I could see like two feet at a time. And then, <laughs> then there would be another two feet. <laughs> right. Very cool. So before we started chatting, we talked a little bit about the challenges that other you know, veterans are having these days. It's something that's near and dear to my heart as well. Like, what do you think? You mentioned you were just down talking to the Secretary of the Army about right. the issue. Like, how can guys like you and I help 
veterans who are desperate, despondent, and committing suicide at a rate of 22 a day, mm. which is just stunning and sad, obviously. But what are your thoughts on this, and what can we do? And what can people listening do to help with awareness or... You know, I, I wish I had a better answer. And I, I mean, the truth is, I, like, I, I don't have a very good one. I don't think that even the, the military right now has a very good answer for it. I think it's like something that we're just beginning to go in. You know, it's, it's, but I think that we have to reframe, have to reframe this. Like, I, I've been on these bases, like, I've been at, you know, bases where, you know, big bases. Um, through the different branches in the Air Force and the Army and the Marines where, like, someone had just completed suicide and, like, then it, it just sends this, like, vibrational, just, like, massive impact and reverberation on the entire community, right? And everybody is impacted by it. And it's, like, there's this, this really, like, big, as there should be probably, you know, this big lamentation, this feeling, mm-hmm. this heavy feeling. Of course. And... One thing that's kind of helped kind of reframe things for me a little bit was um, there is a um, organization called the Travis Mannion Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's um, Travis was a Marine and was yeah. um, killed in combat, but his family, you know, has created this amazing organization. And the, the mantra, the tagline for this organization is they say, "Honor the fallen by challenging the living." Yeah, I and like I, that. I think that like. Instead of, you know, I think a lot of times and talking to a lot of troops that like are on the bases and all this stuff when they're, you know, they have someone that they're close to or like a friend or even an acquaintance that goes in and commits suicide. And then it's like, they have this feeling of like, why couldn't they have known, you know, what could they have done differently, all this stuff. And I think that, that we need to reframe that a little bit to be able to go and really to honor that person you know, we need to challenge living now into right. as, you know, I think a big key is some of the stuff that, you, you know, that you teach and talk about too. It's finding purpose. It's, you know, realizing the, they've lost their why yeah. and they need help finding their why and the drugs aren't going to help. No, it's, you know, there's, all the stuff that, you know, all the other stuff like yoga and, and breath control, that'll help them come back into balance, right. but it's still not enough. Not enough. They still need a why. And for all of us, too, in this why conversation, I think it's like, you know, one thing I think that people miss is it's not, and this applies to anybody, whether they're depressed or just, like, trying to be, you know, higher performing, kind of better in life, but it's like, it, it's not, a, not at all a singular thing, and it's not a static thing. Right. There are constantly, right now in this moment, there are hundreds of whys that are occurring for why me and you are mm-hmm. taping this podcast, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. They may be different for different reasons, right. in this cross-contextual web of all of these different things. Are, right. I, I love what you're saying right now because you're right. A lot of people mistake it for thinking they need to f- figure out that one like one thing, glorious right. thing where they're going to change humanity or, or it's going to be their savior out. And the reality is you just need a why to get out of bed. Yeah. And then you need a why you, yeah, you, to, to do the next thing. To and there are the already a hundred built-in whys right. to get out of bed. Absolutely. I think you need to be conscious of kind of choosing and selecting like what right. is the one that I'm going to go and draw from. Right. I've noticed if I go and give a speech and I'm just like, you know what, like, oh, this is a speech because these are financial advisors and I'm just going to, you know, it's a paycheck. Yeah, it's no. a disempowering place to come from. Right. I can fake it. You know, I can kind of like go through the motions and all right. that, but I know there's a palpable difference. If I go right. and say, like, I believe that there are like people that are capable of changing the world in this, mm-hmm. you know, in this audience, right? Mm-hmm. That there are people that have dreams and passions and goals and, you know, and like 
whatever it is, like in mm-hmm. business owners and um, you know people that are impacting other people in their lives and their mm-hmm. livelihood. It's like it, it's, but there's, but it doesn't mean that I'm not being paid for the event. Doesn't mean that there's not also like a financial consideration. Doesn't mean that there's also not kind of my own ego of looking good. There's not like mm-hmm. um, you know the kind of just like. But the overarching beliefs. why, the one that you're connecting with, yeah, the the one that's helping you find meaning, right? You're clear about that, and so, and that helps drive you and motivate you. And I would so, say when I'm clear about that, it does. Right. No, I yeah, get that. So yeah. we have to remind ourselves, and this is part it's of to me. It's part of a ritual or practice. Yeah. yeah exactly. That's a great word. So the. You know, for instance, we teach a practice of every morning connecting with your why. Yep. So the why of, you know, your perception of why you're on this planet connected to what you're going to do about it in the next 18 months to three years, which would be like launching a new business or getting my CrossFit gym open or getting healthy. Totally. And then connecting that down to what am I going to do today to move myself forward, right? Yep. And you do that in the context of already clearing your mind and dropping in through box breathing and uh, a, a short little kind of somatic practice. It's extraordinarily powerful, right? It's simple. And then you can do, take that and make it a pre-event ritual. So before, before a speech or before a uh, therapy session, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in recovery or something like that. That's like when I think about these vets who are suffering, if we could just get that word to them and teach them a little bit of like some of these life skills and the places that they're being cared for are so systemically grounded in just you know giving them drugs and you know they're starting to do certain things but that they're not like relying on any of these ancient warrior practices that you and i know are so powerful And so like that, when I think about that... It's more heady stuff. It's, it's all heady, like, right. Yeah, yeah. And they, they need to get out of their yeah, head and into their heart. Right. They like can't the keep them locked in their research head. research says this and that, blah, blah, blah. Right? right. And it's like stuff like, like you said earlier today, right? It's like, oh, smiling. We've discovered that smiling is yeah, the that, thing, right? Like if you could ju- exactly <laughs> right. just do laughing yoga right. with these guys, it would probably cure them. But when they go and do research on it, then it's like proves that like that's a thing, right? Right. And like, exactly. oh, okay. No, it's so true. And it's like, to come back to that point of with veterans, like... I think a lot of times the deeper the work that you can go into, like, like it, it helps, you know, and to really go and examine, like, it, I think, you know, research is kind of showing that people are more prone to, to, to go and battle bigger challenges and make certain decisions depending on if they face certain childhood traumas and other things of that nature. Right. My childhood trauma might look a lot different than other people. And frankly, I think a lot of people face things that are tens of thousands of times harder than anything that I had to go and face mm. and that you'd never be able to see it. Right. And as human beings, we're so good at hiding that stuff, right? Absolutely. We're like, we, we cover it up. Well, especially in the West, and this is going to take the conversation a little bit broader, more societal, you know, we've been taught to look outside, that everything is about... Extrinsic. The, yeah. the extrinsic world, you know, the material world and material success and financial success and building things. And, you know, you and I, even though we can do a lot of the internal work, still mm. fall prey to that, right? Totally. Like, success to me is a successful business and... And, you know, a number of books out there and, you know, affecting people. But the reality is, you know, none of that. I mean, it's important, but it's not as important as mm. taking care of what's on the inside and cultivating and, and evolving what's on the inside. And so I think that we're at this major inflection point in the human race. And it's why we're seeing such chaos and confusion. And I think the vets are part of that. It's not just that they've served in combat. Yeah. yeah. Because throughout history, vets have served in combat and right. not had suicide at the rate they were having now. It's just that 
when they get out of combat, they're, face, they're back into a world which has no lexicon or practices for them to touch right. bases internally, right? To figure out how to reorganize their internal battleground and set it up for the win. Totally. And so I think that's where, like, my mission is to tr- begin to get more of a training and lexicon around developing the interior mm. so that we can show up more powerfully and healthy on the exterior. It's going to be, you know, it's going to take time, right? It's like one of those, it's one person at a time. Which is so <laughs> counter to the world that we live in now, right? That's Which is going faster problem, and faster, right? right. We go faster, we want more, you know, and it's like, how can I go, you know, how can I, you know, biohack myself to go and answer 5,000 emails a day, right? Right, it's exactly. Like, I was doing 4,500 last week, now I want 5,000 and it's like... Right, and I swear people know. want, a, they want a pill... You know, that's right. going to make them smarter. They want to pill that's going to make them stronger. And they want the next tool that's going to allow them to impact, you know, more people. And, and there is a lot of good in that yeah. technology. I, I get you know, that, yeah. But it also can be extraordinarily distracting. And it can amplify our problems or amplify our dysfunctions, too. You know what I mean? I think that's probably what's happening here. I think societally, globally, we're looking at that. But it's also, too, I think with veterans, you go and add in, on top of that, you know, a major stressful trauma or something like that that goes and happens in combat. Maybe people were able to, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, if you've got, like, a a bathtub full of water, right, and, and like, you know, you, you go in somebody's, you know, just general bathtub of stress is, is like, high, right? Mm -hmm. But then you go and take a giant, you know, duffel bag of sand like you got outside here and you go and throw it inside there and it's going to go and create a massive, you know, disturbance and a massive stress. You know, the the lower they think that you can go and get the water level in there, Mm -hmm. you go and throw that sandbag in now and there's a lot more room for the displacement. Interesting. If that that makes sense. It's like, I like that. The and I think a lot of that has to, to do with their lifestyle, has to do with their sleep, sleep or their stress. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Has to do with like, you know, going deeper, connecting in. Right. But it's not just like a, a heady type thing. It's not right. just a psychological thing. It's it's in our gut, you know, and in, in like mm-hmm. the you know the heart mind, you know, that right. you, you've talked about, right? right. The kokoro. Right. So yeah, the kokoro means heart mind or whole mind. Oh. And I think that's the that's the key. Like the ancient traditions taught us that the brain is just one, the executive agent of your consciousness, but it is not your whole consciousness. So this flies in the face of modern technologists like Kurzweil and everyone who say that consciousness is complexity. So the more synaptical, you know, things are going on, the more complex, and then that that complexity becomes self-aware. Totally. And so that's why they think that artificial intelligence can become self-aware. And they're not taking into account the heart's, Energy, mm. right? The belly's energy, spiritual energy, the, 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 the ancient notion that consciousness exists in and all around yeah, us yeah, as exactly. an enmeshed being. That's why, you know, when you, tr- like we call it integration, when you train, you know, here's an interesting concept. When you go to your CrossFit gym, you're training yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. intuitionally, and spiritually. And you're not just training yourself to be, do muscle-ups. I've had very similar conversations with, um, with Coach Glassman about that, yeah. you know. I mean, it's really, I think that that's, you know, I think that the, the people that really get what it's about realize that it's it's a you know it's a spiritual experience. It is. It's an evolution every time. That's in fact in SEAL training. I don't know if this is actually true, but this is my story. We call everything we do an evolution, and I believe that's because some wise mm-hmm. instructor years back said we're evolving ourselves. Right. Every time you go out and run five wow. miles in evolution, you're going to evolve yourself, and you're going to come out of it as a stronger person, so true. a different person. Isn't that interesting? You know, when I was a kid, I used to pray 
every single night that I'd like wake up and have arms and legs. Interesting. And if I had continued to go and do that, I think it would have turned out to be a very different experience of life. And hmm. I think that... So what you're saying is you wouldn't change anything? I think I, I, beyond not changing anything, it's, it's by far, I acknowledge it as the greatest gift I've ever been given. I wow. mean, it's, I think it's, you know, it's, it's allowed me, who knows, uh, you know, Coach Klassman said I might have been a heroin addict. Right, <laughs> right. Can you, <laughs> right and, and you probably can't even get an, a, a mental image of who you would be if you had arms and legs. Big time. It's fascinating. But the, the difference is, though, and I think that, you know, something that I, I love I, I really, do. I mean, I, I, like, I love what you shared in terms of, like, you know, the heart, the mind, all of this stuff and the integration with this because it's like, you know, you're a SEAL commander. You're, like, the baddest of the bad in terms of, like, you know, the, the warrior elite. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if you can go and have somebody, well, well if this guy is talking about breathing right. and yoga, right, it, it's not as, like, uh, uncool or weird, right. or, you know? It's like, I think that, and we have to have to present this stuff as an opportunity. As mainstream as and mainstream. as normal. It's yeah, not totally even as normal, but as a way to give you like that access to this huge advantage in life and sure. this leg up, right? The, right. The, really, the reason why this biohacking stuff takes off is because it gives, it's this great advantage. Mm-hmm. But like what, you know, we, we neglect to talk about like this like advantage that, you know, like this, this spiritual advantage that you go yeah, and get. Right. Because, but it's just, for us, it's just kind of a natural thing, you know? Who knows? I probably wouldn't have had any interest in any type of philosophy or anything like that if I maybe maybe it would have but never know right? never know and I'm, I'm so grateful because of that inquiry and because of that opportunity mm-hmm. even though as a kid I was at the point where I was ready to like give up on my life at 10 years old I know what that's like you know mm-hmm. I mean I know what it's like to have no fear or hope for what the future is and the anger and you kind of have to be able to go and meet people where they're at right. and I think you have to also too this stuff that we're talking about it has to be presented as an opportunity it's not as like something that you have to go and do right it can't be have to it can't be dogmatic it yeah. can't be tied to any any one any one thing. religion or yeah. any particular person too you know because people want to put like coach Glassman and you know I'm starting to experience people want to put me on a pedestal I'm like nah yeah, it's not going to happen. And it's, and it's a slippery it's, it's a slippery slope, slope right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you start to go and see yourself in a certain light, and then, like, you know, right. you're better than others. And I think that it, that creates separation. I've seen right. it happen with Absolutely. high-level athletes. I've seen it happen yeah. with public figures that, like, they start seeing themselves as separate. And it, to me, yeah. it creates this, like, this prison of life. Absolutely. You know, that, like, yeah. you can't see yourself as the same as someone else. If you can't see yourself as the same as the busboy at the restaurant right. or the, you know, the cleaning lady at the hotel. And we're all on our journeys, but we're all yeah. the same and we're connected. Totally. Right? And we all have amazing gifts to offer and lessons to learn and things to teach. And people could go and learn just as much hanging out with, with you know, right. the cleaning lady at the hotel as they could from hanging out with us. I mean, in terms of if they really are curious, if they're really open and, and, and willing to go and dive in, it's like there's so much there. Have you ever read uh, Somerset Bond's The Razor's Edge? No. Oh, it's, it's a terrific book. And it's, it's classic because it's about, you know, a different era. I think it was like 1920s, kind of like around that area, almost before or between the wars. I think. I, I could be wrong. It could be later than that. At any rate, so it's a group um, of young individuals who kind of come from money, and they find themselves in Paris, and, you know, yoga and mysticism are really kind of popular over in Europe mm. during that time, and they started to trickle in the United States, and, and this one individual in particular is just really drawn in, and he's, like, so different, and all his peers are treating it like it's hip, <laughs> and this guy is actually doing the work. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, he... Without a lot of fanfare, he's doing the work. Like he's meditating every day, and he's, 
and he just really kind of taps yeah, into that. Not that seeking, thing. It, like not seeking yeah, it, right? Like you phrase just, or cool thing to right, do. Right, it's not like right. cool phase, you yeah. know. And for a lot of people, it's a phase. I'm gonna, I'm gonna meditate. That's like spiritual egoism in this country is running rampant because yeah. people say, "Well, I meditate." <sighs> really, what does that mean? Right. You know what I mean? Right. John Kabat-Zinn, the founder, or Jacob Kabat-Zinn. I, I probably got ruined his name, but he's the founder of mindfulness. Mm. And so he just wrote, recently wrote, wrote a book and said, after enlightenment, you've got to do something like, after enlightenment, do the laundry. Mm. And what he means by that, and I'm going to use a term that he says, and that my yoga teacher said, is you can, if you're an asshole and you meditate for 20 years, you're just going to be a bigger <laughs> asshole. Right. right? Right. Because it really isn't about just sitting there and pretending. Or the right? way of being that created that or whatever. Right. right. You haven't yeah. addressed the underlying, change the underlying yeah. conditions. Right. So back to Somerset Vaughn. So this kid... Like, he's got so much power and wealth. He's accruing all these skills. Just, and he goes back to the United States, and he decides to drive a cab. Because mm. none of it means mm. anything to him. And he figures the, the way that he can actually connect and not be separate, but connect with other people is to just sit in the cab with them wow. for one minute or 20 minutes at wow. a time. How cool is that? Have you ever thought, wouldn't it be cool just to drive an Uber or a Lyft, you know, and get rid of all the structural Some complexity of, the, like, of our lives? Craziest, <laughs> the craziest conversations I've had about this stuff have been with <laughs> like too. an Uber driver, and all it's like some of the funnest moments. I'm like, yeah, I know, what are you like, doing? What are you doing? Right, no, but maybe I'm like, maybe they they're figured all, out. They're all <laughs> way more than we do, right? But it's here we are. Requirement for, around, for like, drivers, you must be enlightened. But no, it's so true, man. And, and that was, you know, my experience really after this period of time I could talk about with my grandma and all that stuff. It was like I, I felt this over this pervasive sense of like meaninglessness mm, yeah. when I saw her pass. And it was like, what is, what is What's the point? What's it all about? Right? And then like, you know, and instead of like, you know, and it, there was some definite like disempowerment that occurred there, but it was also like this sort of powerful like experience of like, well, if that's true, if I think about that, I can basically do whatever I want. If I want to go and build a business, it's not because I have to because of something I'm trying to go and prove or do or get to or something like that, but it's just because that's what I want to freaking do. Absolutely. You know? Well, I love that. So you use the term disempowering. What the reality is, is that you just step back from all of your belief systems yeah. and examine them, and they started to come crumbling down. Well, and so now you're, you're left like, with... There's like a duality there. It's kind right. of like two sides of the same Disempowerment hand, right? of what like, wasn't working. Yeah. And there's, you know, the other side of it, though, is this beauty of like, yeah, they, we are in this massive spinning spaceship that's going through the universe at 66,000 miles per hour, and we're just this little, in, you know, this speck <laughs> in this infinitesimal thing. But like, that's beautiful, because now I can go and do whatever I want, you know? I, like... Um, some of my best, one of my best friends, we're like, he's um, in the Navy right now. We're just getting out and we're starting a swimwear company together. Oh, cool. I'm like, yeah. it's one of the things. Why, why would I want to go into that? You know? Why not Brazilian swimwear? Why not? <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of stuff though. It's like, I just want to have that experience of like, just like that curiosity and discover what this is instead of being locked in. Like, I'm not any one thing. I'm not, I'm not a speaker. I'm not a this or that mm-hmm. or whatever else. I'm not even, you know, mountaineer or whatever. I'm like, you know, I, I, the, like, again, this idea of I don't know, I read, I mean, it's, we were talking about the Upanishads before this, mm-hmm. you know, but like I read in the Upanishads, it says like Brahman and Atman, meaning like soul and reality, like they are only known to those who don't know it and mm-hmm. unknown to those who know it. So the only way to know it is by not knowing.
Okay, hey, sorry, Kyle, we just had to take a little station break. <laughs> Technical difficulties. We, ra we ran out of storage on the camera, so, and frankly, we've been going for quite a long time, yeah. so we're going to do a part two to this. Let's do it. You want to do that? That would be awesome. We've got a lot more to talk about. Um, and I'm excited to know uh, that you're going to be speaking at our Unveil Mind retreat, December Man, I'm 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, I right. think, right? I'm just pumped to, to be there and learn. I mean, Jimmy Chin. Are you coming for the whole thing? I'm going to be there as much as I can. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. yeah It'll be great sure. to have you there. So um, if you're on the fence out there about the Unbeal Mind Retreat, I think this podcast is going to run before then or not. Yes. I'm getting a nod. So you still have time to enroll. Go to unbealmind.com and check it out. And um, go check out Kyle's stuff at kylemaynard.com. Yep. How do you spell Maynard? M-A-Y-N-A-R-D. M-A-Y-N-A-R-D. Yeah. Or just Google, Google Kyle something. I don't know. I don't, who knows what will come up? I know. Depends on what happens this weekend for my friend's birthday. But <laughs> <laughs> awesome workout. Cool. So, so awesome to have you here as usual. And um, we'll do a uh, part due soon. And uh, now that I know you live in San Diego, I'll hunt you down and let's do it, brother. We'll do some stuff together. Absolutely, man. Yeah. For sure. Who you man? Awesome. You rock it, Steve. Thanks for being awesome. you. Thank you, man. Train hard, stay safe, have fun. Hoo ya, coach by now. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UTT. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy. 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.